Father, thank you for our time in the Word, and praying, God, that you bless it to our understanding. Thank you, God, for the holiday season, and to be able to reflect uh, more candidly upon Christ and his uh, birth into this world, and the idea that God becomes flesh, and, and Father, as we move forward into this brand new year that you have for us, that you've blessed us to participate in, that, Father, we would use every moment faithfully, that we would redeem the time because the days are evil. Uh, Father, give us a sobriety about where we are in life and where we want to be with you. We pray, Father, that you would stir us up, and we pray, God, that you would use us as instruments of righteousness. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 12. While you're doing that, once you get there, you can pull out your handout. And oddly enough, I don't have a pen on me today. That's weird. You guys should be excited. That means I don't have it to throw at anybody. <laughs> but, um, and if you, if you will pull out your handout as well, one thing you're going to notice in your handout is there's a lot. Oh, thank you. There's a lot of scripture references. The first thing I got thrown at me here, it was a pen. I thought it would be tomatoes or something. <laughs> You guys ever seen those those scenes somebody's doing bad on stage and they would throw who brought vegetables to that thing that's the question you have to ask good grief so Genesis 12 and here's what we're going to do today we're going to do a lot of reading and the reason why we're going to do a lot of reading is because there's just a lot to cover about this one subject and the idea is is we're dealing with a covenant and a covenant is a, fill in the blank, contract, good. It is a contract that God is making. It is an agreement that he is coming into of which he is binding himself with someone as far as certain stipulations need to be made. Now, the reason why we are going over this contract and we're hitting on it so heavy is because if this covenant with Abraham does not come true, God is not God. If this covenant with Abraham does not come true, you need to take the book of Revelation and cut it out of the back of your Bible. That's why this is so important. If this contract with Abraham does not come true, you can never trust a word that God ever says. So there's a lot that is on the line as far as how we think about God, how we interpret the rest of the Bible, as far as how we just deal with life situations, how do you deal with it when life looks bleak? I mean, some of us, I'm sure, are saying, I'm so glad 2017 is over because the idea of a brand new year gives you the idea of a brand new fresh start. Now, raise your hand if you were so foolish enough as to make a resolution for the new year. Raise your hand. Excellent. I like it. Two brave souls. Anybody else? Not till tomorrow. <laughs> Not till tomorrow. I'm going to eat everything I want and sit around as much as I want now, right? So I, I looked up, what are the five, top five resolutions for next year? Weight loss. Weight loss is number two. Exercise, number two. What's that? Finances. Finances is number three. Getting organized. Wasn't in the top five. Be a better person? What a fleshly endeavor. 
That's absolute foolishness apart from the Holy Spirit, right? Number five was read more books, right? Pastor Steve and I say, amen. In fact, let me tell you something. Pastor Steve, you're going to kick out of this. I have a pastor friend of mine down in Evansville where I, where I came from. And he had somebody in his congregation pass away a while back and left all of his theological library to him. And so he calls me, said, oh, you're going to be down? And I said, yeah. And he said, won't you come over at my house and pick out whatever you want and take it home with you? Right? It's Christmas again. <laughs> so I walk in and when I pull up, the garage door comes up. And I mean books, boxes of books everywhere. And I just was, <laughs> right, excited. So I have four huge boxes of books being delivered to my house on Tuesday. And I'll come home and Pastor, I'll bring them here and Pastor Steve and I will put on our Santa hats and just go through them and have fun with them, right? It'll be a good time. So I'm really excited about that. But number five was read more books. Number four was sleep more. At least people were bold about it, right? If I'm going to do something this new year, it's going to sleep. Number one was eating better. Eating better. Now think about it. Eating better, exercise, spend less, sleep more, read more books. All of these are promises that are going to end up in two ways. Either number one, they're not going to be kept, right? But then you always have the guy or the girl who is super disciplined, who is going to see this thing through until the end, right? Those are usually the prideful people in your life, okay? But probably what you're going to find is there's going to come a point where even if they meet that goal and even if they stick with it, for some reason it's not going to bring a satisfaction. You're either going to fail or not be satisfied. And I think the ultimate conclusion we have to come to is is that anything in and of ourselves that we promise that we'll do that we'll set out to navigate that we're going to make plans and we're going to try to put it all together let's be honest in light of the lord it's foolishness isn't it knowing what he could possibly have for us i mean think about it what if he calls you to germany to be a missionary that'll keep me from eating well it might well that'll keep me from sleeping more it might, but is it not worth it? I think one thing that we have to reflect upon in this new year is who God is. Who God is. Because I promise you this, the more you focus on who God is, the more it moves you forward to do what God wants you to do. It's not about looking at where I failed. Why? Because we all fail every day. It's not a surprise. And when we get down on ourselves about failing, it's that we've lied to ourselves about who we truly are in light of who the Lord is. Does that make sense? And so the whole idea really needs to come down to who is God? Who is God? This is kind of how we started this back in June. So what I want to do is I want to take you through a series of passages, and I want to show you some things about who is God and maybe give us something we could fix our minds upon that will not just carry us past tomorrow, but will carry us for the rest of our lives. So Genesis chapter 12, here's what we see. We've read this before. Repetition's a good teacher. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Land, number one, right? 
and I will make you a great nation, seed, or offspring. Why? Because Abraham's about 75 years old. He has no kids. So notice, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. He will receive a blessing and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. Or you will be a blessing to people is the idea. So notice, land, seed, blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, and remember, that means belittle you, treats you lightly, I will curse, I will ban, I will place under a heavy curse is the idea. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. These verses right here, these three verses, are foundational for everything in your life. You may not realize it, you may not totally grasp it, you may have never come to the realization of it, but it does. And the reason is, is because if they're not true, you have to discount the scriptures completely. If they're not true, there is no hope for Israel in the future. If, there is tr- if it's not true, then yeah, some, some fool with a bomb is going to blow everything up. But what you find is, is that's not how the world winds down. The world winds down with the fulfillment of these promises. That's how it works. And so the idea is, is God keeping these promises firm and moving them through generations to see them through to the end. So with that, we turn over to Genesis 15. Now, Genesis 15, you're probably familiar with because of the odd way that, that uh, Abraham does a sacrifice here. But it's also the key verse where we saw two things. Number one, God reveals himself as Adonai here, which is the idea of master. It's the idea uh, of him being the Lord, and it's a different approach that Abram used in addressing Yahweh at that time. But we also see the means of justification, right? For instance, if you look, uh, let's see here. Uh, Let's see here, verse 2. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? That's the issue here. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, excuse me, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Massive promise, amazing promise, and a beautiful illustration to go with it. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it, or he accounted it. He assigned it, he imputed it to him as righteousness. Righteousness comes by one way, and that is believing in God, what he has said. Now, this is the offspring seed promise of how this would happen. But if you remember, the narrative moves forward. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Uh, to possess it. Now, real quick, Deuteronomy class. The idea of possess there is the idea of what? Inheritance. It's the idea of you will inherit this land. So notice, verses 1 through 6, offspring promise, you're going to have kids, and they're going to have oodles and gobs of kids. I think that's the Hebrew. Pastor Steve, you can correct me later about it. But oodles and gobs of kids. But moving on into that, also the land. 
God is super serious about real estate in the Bible. It is so important to understand that. So notice the land to inherit it, to possess it. Verse 8, he said, O Lord God, O Adonai Yahweh. How may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. So he laid them and he made a pathway in between. Now we're going to skip on down through here. He tells him about the Egyptian captivity and to move on to verse 17, it says here, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. The presence of God was the only one that passed in between the pieces. Now understand that. Abram never passes in between the pieces. It's like a one-sided handshake is the idea. And what this shows us is this shows us that Yahweh's promises to Abraham are unconditional in nature. Abraham can mess everything up as much as he possibly could, and God will still see it through to fulfill his promises. That's just how sovereign he is. So no matter what Abram could bring to the table here, it doesn't matter, and we know he fails, right? He goes down into Egypt, he lies about who his wife is, hey, you're my sister, and all this crazy stuff, and he puts the line in jeopardy. He gets with Hagar, putting the line in jeopardy. And yet God still remains faithful through the whole thing, still fulfills the promise exactly as he said he would do. And notice he says after that, verse 18, on that day, the Lord, here it is, made a covenant. There is the covenant. Made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. Notice it goes beyond him. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So from the Nile to the Euphrates river that empties out into the Persian Gulf. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusite. All land occupied by those people was going to be handed over to Abram's descendants. Who owns the land? The Jews own the land. That's who owns it. When you're watching CNN or Fox News at night and they come on, as they do every evening, talk about something with the Israeli-Palestinian struggle, talking about the conflict in the Middle East, and it's always over, are they going to make a Palestinian state, and is somebody going to set this aside, and now we're fighting over the Gaza Strip, and people are freaking out about the Temple Mount, and all of these things, we have no need to be worried. I would love it if Wolf Blitzer got up and said, well, according to Genesis 15. You think that'd scare somebody? I think he lost his job right then, right? Amazing. And why did he lose his job? Because he did something the journalist never does. He tells the truth. It's amazing. Fantastic. Let's move on to the next one. Chapter 17. If you remember, there was a period of silence. And the period of silence comes between the birth of Ishmael and about a year's time before Abram and Sarah have Isaac. In fact, if you look at chapter 16, verse 16, it says, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. And then the very next verse, now when Abram was 99 years old, God was silent, which is scary to me. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, how many of you have a little number there? 
next to your Bible or some reference there for Almighty. We like God Almighty. That's easy for us to grasp, but what do you have? What, what, is, the, what is the term there? El Shaddai. How many people automatically thought of Amy Grant when you said that? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Everybody thought of that immediately, right? If you look at your notes here, I want to show you something. Under, under the, the Genesis 17, 1 through 8, notice Yahweh reveals himself as El Shaddai, meaning, and here's the definition I was able to find by a pretty reputable Old Testament scholar, the all-abundant one who steps up in times of special urgency and by his power meets human needs. If you're someone who has a lot of trouble with the Old Testament, navigating through it and needs a good basis for it, this book right here is incredible. This is where I got this from. If you're wondering what it is, I've got it in the footnote there. Everlasting Dominion, a theology of the Old Testament. And it's written by a guy named Eugene Merrill. And he's an Old Testament scholar. It's a pretty thick little book, but I tell you what, it's insightful. It's not ridiculously hard to read or anything like that. You can easily get out your Bible, follow his logic along. Very well done book. Uh, probably one of the best that I've found that, that doesn't want to become pedantic after a certain but anyway, uh, moving on here. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Now notice what he says to Abram. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. There's the seed offspring blessing. Everybody see that? He's reiterating it over and over to Abram. Why is he doing that? Because a lot of times you got to tell somebody five or six times before they finally get it, don't you? You know how that is. Everybody just got back from Christmas, right? You got to tell them five or six times before they believe you. So notice here, verse 3, Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Abram means exalted father, but notice what it says here. But your name shall be Abraham. Father of a multitude is the idea. For, here's the reason, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Now, for somebody who is 99, you have to tell them this a bunch of times. Exceedingly fruitful? What? And didn't Abraham go on to have a lot of kids? I mean, I just threw Sarah, or he had uh, Ishmael already at Isaac through Sarah, and then he had about six kids through Keturah, right? Everybody remember that? So notice, this wasn't something that was odd, but notice it. I'm sure he wasn't believing it. Notice it says here, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you and kings. Not just anybody. Not just somebody down on the street. We're talking about kings. We're talking about royalty coming through your line will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. Notice it moves forward throughout their generations for, and here it is, what? Everlasting covenant. What does that mean? Can be broken. It's just like the idea of everlasting life. If we take the time to think about what everlasting life is that we receive at the moment we believe in Christ, you will never have a faulty assurance of your salvation. Why? Because it's everlasting. It lasts forever. This covenant is everlasting. It will never be broken. It will never be altered. 
It will never be manipulated. What God is telling Abram is sure fire to happen. So notice, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Verse 8, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land. Notice, seed and land, seed and land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an what? Everlasting possession. Hold on, Wolf Blitzer, right? And I will be their God. I'll tell you something that's real helpful sometime to go through these eight verses. Mark every time you see the word I. Notice how unconditional the covenant is. God will do this. I will do this. I will supply this. I will make this. I will give you this. I am going to see this through. I, 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 I. It's all about what God's going to do. It's all about what God has said. Everybody with me? Okay, great. Now let's move on to the next one. Chapter 25, and this is where we're picking up into some fresh territory now. Genesis 22, we dealt with the sacrifice of Isaac. Chapter 25, starting in verse 19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac. See that word generations? You'll probably remember this. That is the word Toledoth. And Toledoth is the idea of the recording of the descendants. Why do I bring that up to you? Because Genesis is broken up as a book in what is called a Toledoth structure. You will have, uh, and these are the generations, and then you'll have a segment. And these are the generations, and then you'll have a few more chapters. And these are the generations. And these seem to be the markers that Moses used whenever he was commanded to write these things down. So this is known as a Toledoth, T-O-L-E-D-O-T-H, T-O-L-E-D-O-T-H, just just for you nerdy people out there that love that stuff. Now, notice that we skipped over Isaac, and the reason why we skipped over Isaac is, honestly, there's not much about Isaac in the scriptures. I think he occupies about three chapters, and that's it. You deal with his birth, you deal with the sacrifice, uh, um, um, that he was participating in. And then you deal with, we got to go find him a bride. And then he kind of passes off the scene and all of a sudden Jacob comes into front and center. So it says here, now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why them am I this way? If I'm blessed, why is everybody fighting, right? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Don't you love that? She decided she was going to pray about it. I don't know why this is the way that it is. What's my first action? Prayer. Good, good girl. All right, verse 23. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. The one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came forth uh, 
with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means supplanter. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. That guy prayed for 20 years for kids. 20 years, right? You talk about New Year's resolutions. I'm going to pray for this. We would have given up by January 3rd. We would have. He prayed for 20 years for children. Yes, sir. God's beautiful timing. The, the, the stuff we get to ask him in Theology 101 when we get up there. That's what I'm looking for, you know. As soon as he walks in to teach Bible, so I'm going to be like, before we start, I got some questions. Somewhere around there, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, perseverance of people. Well, they didn't have TV back then. There's a reason why. They didn't have all these weird stuff to occupy their time. There were no video games or anything, so that all they had to do was pray. That was good. So, but notice the idea here is that the older will serve the younger. Now, all the way up until verse 26, you have the record of the birth that's going to take place. And notice that this prophecy that happens, what the Lord answers Rebecca does not have so much to do with them as individuals. It has more to do with what is going to come out of them as far as blossoming into nations is concerned. And this is where it's important to deal with because when we get into Romans chapter 9 and we read Jacob I have loved but Esau I have hated and we all lose our minds about how in the world God could have hated anybody and then the super righteous pious guy in the group says well how in the world could he ever love Jacob because he was a swindler right and that kind of stuff. When we get into all that mess you have to ask yourself number one where is that quoted from does anybody know where jacob i have loved but esau i've hated is quoted from anybody know malachi or also known as the spanish prophet malachi it's the very last book of the old testament so here's what you see the older will serve the younger genesis jacob i have loved but esau i have hated Malachi, that's 39 books difference. Does everybody see that? We're talking about this people blossoming into a nation and the direction that their leaders chose to take their nation was one that was away from Yahweh. Did they know about Yahweh? Yes. Get this. Was it the previous descendants' responsibility to pass on at least orally to their kids to raise them according to the ways of the Lord? Absolutely. The parents are the prime disciplers in the home always. Doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, whatever, it doesn't change. Always that's the case. It is a neglect of God and his word and a willful drifting away from truth that led to this point. So it's important that we get that in our minds. We understand how in the world could God say that? Well, he didn't say that because that's what he just decided. He said that because that's the path that they led themselves down. So verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, verse 28, good grief, okay? Everybody hold on to your to your hats here. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. Man thinking with his stomach, right? I know all you ladies just thought that. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, stop for a second. I think this is important for us to understand. You think these kids knew that? 
Kids are smart, aren't they? Gosh, kids are smart. You think Jacob looked over at his dad and thought, you don't love me as much as you love him. I bet he knew it. Man, that's painful. That's a, that's a real good lesson to learn in parenting from the word. Don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into that trap. Especially, guys, don't let your stomach lead you in that trap. Verse 29, when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and was famished. Uh, real quick, famished here. Because this, this whole... Let's be honest, even in Sunday school, when we were in fourth grade, we were like, this is ridiculous, right? What is wrong with Esau? Famished. The idea here is, is that he has a weakened condition that because he is hungry has diminished his alertness or his state or his agility is the type of idea. And Esau said to Jacob, and let's just go ahead and add the dramatics to it, right? Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which is the idea of red. And this is where the the nation of Edom comes from that dwells to the east of Israel. It says here, but Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Now, that's not too high of a price, is it? I mean, that's like asking, you know, I need a cheeseburger. Well, a million dollars will get you one, right? Must have been pretty bad. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? Now, what use was the birthright? What was Esau's position? He's the firstborn of this family. The firstborn gets what? Double inheritance. The firstborn is the jackpot. The firstborn is who you want to be. Now, I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been getting what recipe from whoever person. Ain't no amount of stew for you to be giving up your double inheritance. What does this tell you about Esau as a person? Does he have a sense of value? No. No. In fact, let's do this. Everybody put your finger here, since there's no Sunday school. Turn to Hebrews 12. I know the Packers play today. We'll get you out by them. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Did Wisconsin play yesterday? What? I was on the road. I was on the road driving. Okay, I was navigating the flat hills of Indiana. So, did they win? Okay. Well, praise God for you guys. That's good. Okay. I was busy reading my Bible and praying prostrate before the Lord, and I was discipling hungry people. I don't know. Don't you love doing that? That's real quick. That's called a Jesus juke, okay? Somebody tells you something they were doing and you say, oh, well, I was too busy evangelizing 50 million people while you were doing that. That's Jesus juking them. That way you make them feel really horrible and then hopefully they'll shape up and quit wasting their life on Wisconsin football. So moving on. (laughs) Okay. They lost. They lost. I know that. But research why they lost. Research what the ref did to their running back. Let's move on. Stop now. We live, we live in a world of YouTube. And let me just go ahead and tell you, since you're all skeptics about it all. The running back was down on the ground. The official offered to help him up. It is illegal for a player to make willful contact with an official or an official to make contact with a player. 
So the running back denied his hand and wouldn't let him help him up, and it made the ref mad, and the ref threw him out of the game. Kentucky's running back was their best player. He was only in the game for, I don't remember how long. It wasn't very long at all, and he'd been training that whole time. He was so excited to play, and they were going to win this, and he went in and threw him out because the ref got his feelings hurt because he wouldn't take his hand. So, (laughs) that's all I got to say. Y'all doubt, what is it with your guys' doubt of me? I come in with a throwback Packers dress. That's not Packers. That's not Packers. Just love me. Okay? Trying to love you. Love me. Help me love you. uh, Hebrews 12. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 of Hebrews 12. Remember, anytime that you can find something in Scripture that will give you a commentary on another event in Scripture, that's the way to go. It's the best commentary. Verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. He's writing to believers. And no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, because here's what bitterness does in a church, get this, many be defiled. It's like gangrene. It spreads, okay? Notice that there be no immoral or godless person like who? Notice that he wanted his audience to get a picture in their minds. Immoral and godless. What was Esau's problem? Did he know Yahweh? He did, but did he respect Yahweh? No, he lived his life in a godless manner. He lived his life in an immoral manner. When you know know Yahweh, there is a defined standard of rights and wrongs that automatically come with that. It's inherent with this idea of who God is. Why? Because he sets the standard of righteousness. He sets the standard of what is acceptable and unacceptable. Esau said, you know what? That sounds great. I'm going to go do my own thing. But notice what it says about him. Let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now watch this. This is important. For, here's the explanation. You know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For, here's the reason why, he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau is an example of someone who so willfully sinned against the Lord that no second chance was given to him. You realize that happens in Scripture? Hebrews 6, 6, Hebrews 10, 26. There are actually two pertinent examples that are given of people willfully sinning against the Lord in such a way as to where God does not grant them a second chance. Why? Because the revelation is so bright of what God is saying that it had to be a hard-hearted willfulness towards sin and self that they would not dare go in that direction. So notice, even Esau, that's the example we're talking about here of him giving that up so quickly. So let's move back to Genesis 25. Starting in verse 33, and Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and he rose and he went on his way. Thus Esau despised, and that Hebrew word can actually mean he undervalued. He undervalued his birthright. The older will serve 
the younger. The birthright passes from the firstborn to the secondborn to Jacob. Now let's move on to our next reference, Genesis 28. Starting in verse 13. Actually, sorry, starting in verse 1, then we'll skip down to 13. Now we know, the reason why I'm not filling in all these blanks here is because we've been to Sunday school long enough that we know all the stories that I'm not touching, right? We know about Jacob coming in and he's got on Esau's garments and they put uh, skin upon him so that he seems to be hairy and Jacob, you know, uh, uh, Isaac's like, well, you smell like Esau, but you sound like Jacob, right? And he's blind, he can't see the whole thing. We know about the deception that takes place. We know about Rebecca saying, may your curse be on me for this thing. We, we get all that, but here's the aftermath. And I think it's very interesting. Chapter 28, verse one. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. Wait a second. Jacob just got done deceiving you. Why does Isaac bless him? Isaac blesses him, watch this, and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. See, this is one fatal mistake that Esau made. The fatal mistake that Esau made is he decided that he found two Hittite women and he married both of them. And then when he found out that because he married the Hittite women and it didn't make his parents happy and they wanted to keep within the family line so that the blessing would be perpetuated, he went out and found a descendant of Ishmael and married her as well compounding a sin upon a sin upon a sin upon a sin, right? Esau has problems here. And notice that he's trying to get his parents' acceptance rather than caring about what the Lord thinks about these things. Isaac, having already given this blessing to Jacob, follows through with his word and stays fast with it. So notice he sends him out. Verse 2, Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take for yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Verse 3, May El Shaddai, there it is again, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. What's that in keeping with? the covenant, the seed and offspring. May God use you. Since I've only got two children and they were both born at the same time and Esau's already messed all this up with everything that he's done and he's even done away with this firstborn rights when he could have been the heir. No, instead, you are the one that hasn't married yet. You are the one that still has the purity of the bloodline. The promises pass through you. Go here and may God bless you in doing that. Verse four, may he also give you the blessing of who? Notice that. To you and to your descendants with you that you may possess, inherit is the idea, the land, there it is again, the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. There it is again, moving down. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. Sorry, this is the ladder. Angels ascending and descending. The Lord stood above it and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The what? The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. The land promise. It's contingent upon who God is. Verse 14, your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Does everybody see seed and blessing are right there? Land, verse 13 Seed, 14a, blessing, 14b. Verse 15, behold, I 
am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Safety, right? And will bring you back to the land. Guidance for, here's the explanation, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In other words, I won't leave you alone, Jacob, until my faithfulness has been vindicated because everything I've said has come true to a T. So moving on, verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord, surely Yahweh is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome. Now I love the Old Testament word awesome because today we go awesome, right? Because we mean it's cool or it's amazing or something like that. The Old Testament word for awesome actually means dreadful, okay? It means I'm scared out of my mind is what it means. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. That's where the word Bethel comes from. It means house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the pillar that he put under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. So he anoints it. And the idea of anointing it here is commemorating it because God has revealed himself to Jacob. He had never revealed himself to Jacob before. Everything that Jacob had ever heard about Yahweh had come from Abraham and Isaac communicating to him. This was his first one-on-one experience with God revealing himself to him. It says here, verse 19, he called the name of the place Bethel. However, previously, the name of the city had been called Luz, which Luz means separation in Hebrew. Now, verse 20, this is weird because verse 20 shows us that he did not believe what God just promised him in verses 13 through 15. And watch what he says. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, stop. Did God already promise that? He did. And will keep me on this journey that I take. Did God already promise that? He did. And will give me food to eat and garments to wear. It wasn't specific, but God's still with him on it, right? I don't think God's going to let him run around hungry and naked and bring him back to the land. He says here, and I will return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God. Then Yahweh will be my Elohim. He says here, this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. This is where we get the dreadful word tithe that we've drug into the church age, okay? He's going to give a tenth of everything he has in this. In other words, the response, if God is faithful in keeping me in these things, then I will worship him, not just with my mouth, not just with what I have, but also with my finances. I will bless him because of his peace and his safety on me. Now, let's move on to the next one. Where are we at? Chapter 31, verse 13. This is real good because it's just one verse. Notice how all this happens. He goes with Laban, spends 20 years working. He gets Leah and Rachel, starts having lots of kids. He's traveling back. Look at verse 13. I am the God of Bethel. Now, this is Yahweh speaking. And notice this is a different way that he refers to himself. I am the God of Bethel. And notice that he's identifying himself with what Jacob identified the land to be in that place when he anointed the pillar where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me, right? 28 verse 20. Now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. In other words, 
Yahweh stoops down in order to identify with Jacob of the place of which Jacob most identified God. Does that make sense? He's making this connection with Jacob to show his faithfulness. He wants to be trusted in this. And he's going to use Jacob in order to bring about or perpetuate the covenant forward. Now, chapter 32, going to verse 24. Don't let your hand get tired. You can make a resolution not to use your hand as much tomorrow, right? 32, verse 24. We're familiar with this one, right? Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And Jacob didn't give up even at that. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, Jacob knows what's going on here. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, again, let me give you this. I I know it may seem a little laborious, but turn over to Hosea. Put your finger here, turn over to Hosea. Do we need to go through our Old Testament song? Yeah, you want to? Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. First and second, first and second, first and second, good. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then what? Isaiah, Jeremiah, good. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, good, good. See, you guys have it, yeah. Everybody just turn to the front page, table of contents. It's good. Everybody turn to Hosea 12. Again, somebody recounts an event. Look at verse 2. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. Now understand, Jacob here is not talking about the individual. It's talking about the nation. And we have to let context determine the meaning any time we are reading the Scriptures. It says here, He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with who? God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel. And there he spoke to us. Now, can I make sense of that? How can an angel be God and God be an angel? I'll be honest with you, I can't. What we know is commonly brought up as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And we see that whenever that angel speaks, he commands things as only God could command them to happen. So that's probably what's actually going on here is Jacob's wrestling with Jesus is the idea. Now, Turning back, chapter 32 of Genesis. The name Israel means strives with God. Verse 29, then Jacob said to him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been 
preserved. He wrestled with God at that time. And notice that his name is changed to Israel. Okay, very important to understand. Over to chapter 32. I'm sorry, not chapter 32, 35. This is a reaffirming of Jacob's name being changed. Looking here at verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am El Shaddai. Notice that. I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. Now what does be fruitful and multiply have to do with? The seed promise, notice that. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. Everybody remember when he promised this to Abraham? Okay, so notice that. Verse 12, the what? The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Comes back to the exact same place. God appears to him again, blesses him. The covenant is passed over to him. One last scripture reference, chapter 37, verse 1. And just to give you another hint, Chapter 37, verse 2 is another Toledoth section. So if you want to mark that for a personal study, you can. Chapter 37, verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. Here's what we just did. We covered a lot of ground by doing a Bible study of one pertinent theme. And the idea is, is we want to see how this promise gets passed along. How does it go along throughout Scripture? How do we know that we can trust God to make these things happen, to bring them about? His very nature as one to be trusted is on the line. I mean, think about it. We, we trust Jesus and we have salvation. We have eternal life now, but do we have the full realization of what that's going to be? No but are we trusting him for it? If you can't trust his character, you can't trust him for that. Everybody see how that works? And so what is the Old Testament? It is a documenting of promises that God is consistently fulfilling in order to further convince us of the truthfulness of his word. In other words, he doesn't want us in 2018 or any other time running around in unbelief. Now let me show you something interesting. Turn to Romans 9. Oh my gosh, Romans 9. If you can see through the highlighter and ink marks on your Bible in Romans 9, because we had no problem finding those things in the Old Testament, right? I'm just messing. And no, I'm not going to cover the whole thing, but we do not have Sunday school. Everybody loves the end of Romans 8, don't they? I'm convinced. Neither death nor life, height nor depth, Dodge, Ford, or Oldsmobile. 
can keep me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? We, we love that. That's in there somewhere. We, we love that passage. We love it. And it's so, when you're done with it, you almost want to levitate and ah, kind of float away a little bit because it's just so, I can hold on to that verse all day long. When I am down, I grab onto that thing and it is a mind renewer out of this world. I need that, right? But a lot of the times when we are reading the Bible and we see that big number that starts the next part, it causes our mind to make a mental break. And that's one of the worst things because it was never written that way. So notice what he says. I'm telling the truth in Christ. Verse 1, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why, Paul? Why are you so upset? For, here's the causal conjunction, I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as the sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Now, Here's what the break is giving us here that we need to understand. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Paul's struggle here is if that is the case, then that means I've got to be doubly upset about what's going on with Israel right now because they're not believing the Messiah that has been put forward by the God that they've trusted all this time. In other words, his promises have finally come fulfilled to bless the whole world and the people who had the most revelation are the people who are not accepting it. Everybody see why that would mess Paul up? Especially as someone who is a Jew and was highly trained and was believing and had been called to be the minister to the Gentiles by God himself. Does everybody see why he would be so just struggling, internally just freaking out about the situation. He's upset about this. So what is the problem? I love verse 6. And if you don't get verse 6, you won't be able to interpret the rest of this chapter faithfully. But it is not as though the what? The word of God has failed. Notice Paul's conclusion about this. Israel remains in an unsaved state. And yet they have all this blessing, privilege, revelation. All these things have been given to them. In fact, in Genesis, we just saw how he meticulously passes on the promise to make sure it gets fulfilled through this lineage. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's taking care of business there, making sure it comes about. Passing on the covenant as it goes. Why in the world are they not believing? Well, here's one thing I know up front. God's word doesn't fail. God's word never fails. Look what he says. For, here's the explanation. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now everybody immediately goes, all right, time out. Why, 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 why is he messing me up like that? Here's his point. Not everybody who comes from Jacob is a recipient of this blessing and how it goes forward in bringing about the Messiah. Notice what he says. Verse 7, nor... Here's the same explanation. Are they all children? Because they are Abraham's descendants. But, and here's the quotation, 
through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Now pause. Wasn't Ishmael born before Isaac? Notice he's not considered Abraham's child. Did he come from Abraham? Yeah. Notice he's not considered part of his child. Why? Because it wasn't part of the promise. The idea is the promise. God bringing about his promise in this Abrahamic covenant. He says here, verse 8, that is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but it is the children of the, ding, 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 are regarded as descendants. For, here's the explanation. This is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. We remember reading about that, right? Notice the next one. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Didn't we just read the older will serve the younger? What, what was it in regards to? Going to heaven when you die? No, it had everything to do with the promise of the covenant. Everybody see that? And that's in Genesis. Notice, we found that in Genesis. What's the next verse say? Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Where was that found? Malachi. Because when the opportunity came about for them to spring into motion as nations and how they led their people, Esau went off the path. Jacob instead was blessed by God and was used by God to perpetuate this promise. It's all about his promise coming true. It's all about his promise, get this, coming true. Now, why does this matter today? The descendant promise has been fulfilled. Deuteronomy chapter 1 tells us, Moses says, on this day you become as many as the stars in the sky. May God bless you even more and more. Has the Messiah come? And he offers salvation to the world. So that's come about. Have they occupied all the land? They've never occupied all the land. And so notice, all of prophetic history still rests upon this covenant. Now you say, okay, that's great. I'm not Jewish. Why in the world does that matter? Right? Here's the reason why. Because a lot of times we think like Esau, that the blessing we seek is found somewhere else, or we disregard the blessing that we currently have in Christ. We don't realize that God went through an extremely amazing span of history to carefully teach us meticulously about one truth only one truth he wants us to get if we get this we got everything else thrown in with it he can be trusted he can be trusted well i don't know how this is going to work out well pause and step back can he be trusted yes if he can be trusted then what does that cause us to do if you're coming all of a sudden, you've got medical bills that you can't pay. Good grief. How in the world is this going to work out? You've got somebody who's sick and you don't know how to deal with it. You've had a calamity come upon in your life. Because I promise you, 2018 is going to bring storms. Just like every year previous has. It's going to happen. And so when everything is changing around you, you need one thing that does not change. And that is the word of God. He does not change. How would life be different? I mean, we see how he, it's almost like needle and thread stuff. 
He can get his promises where he needs to go so they come to be fulfilled. How would life be different if in the midst of a calamity we stepped back and we took a spiritual time out and we said, can God be trusted? He can. Now what do I need to do? You know what you'll probably find? Prayer just became your best friend. You know what you'll probably find? Is that maybe it was a lot of things around us that were distracting us from being acutely aware of his presence. We realized they're garbage to the realization. We've always known it. We just now came to where the lights popped on. You know, it's one of those things. All of a sudden, those things have got to go. Why? Because they get in the way. All of a sudden, it became, wow, the Old Testament does have a lot of worth. Let's get into this thing. Let's check it out. All of a sudden, you have a hankering for the book of Numbers. Now, you must have really got struck with the lightning bolt of the Holy Spirit. But you're on fire for Jesus. Why? Because you have a God that does not change. You can always trust him. And get this. He invites you to be close. And how did he make that possible? He had Jesus grab his hand. He had Jesus grab your hand and bridge a gap. Don't waste 2018. God can be trusted, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word constantly testifies to your faithfulness, to your trustworthiness, to your goodness. Father, you are sovereign beyond all we could understand. You have things going on that even if you told us, we wouldn't be able to to fathom. Father, whatever we get hit with in life, whatever we're facing, whatever discouragement is waiting around the corner. Regardless, help us to realize that our best days are forward because they lead to you. Thank you, God, for giving your trustworthy word. Help us, Father, in our unbelief. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.